Two and a Half Admins, episode 71. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary plug, Alan. OpenZFS native encryption. Yeah, uh, so this article starts with the basics of how you can use ZFS native encryption, but what makes it really interesting is it contains the recipe of how to do this for a remote server. So if you rent a machine from a, a VPS provider or even a physical machine, the problem with trying to do encryption on the disk is that you have to enter the key at boot to you know map the file system, and that's not something you can do with a, a remote machine. So this basically allows you to boot into one version of the operating system that basically just has enough for you to SSH in and enter the right keys and then reroute the system into the encrypted version and then have access to all of the stuff that is only stored on the disk in the encrypted form. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So as this is the last episode of the year, I thought we could talk about the big story of the year or the recurring story of the year, and that is ransomware. We've got a fairly recent example with the Kronos hack and how that has seriously impacted a lot of people's paychecks around Christmas time, which is never good. But I have to wonder, why will this story not go away? Basically, what we're really seeing doesn't specifically have anything to do with InfoSec, in my opinion. The reason that you're really seeing this is because very few organizations have really had proper, well-tested, well-understood disaster recovery mechanisms. I mean, ultimately, that's what ransomware boils down to. It's a catastrophic disaster. It's not much different than, you know, if you... I don't know, lose your storage controller and it, you know, fries all your drives and you got to recover from backup. Uh, that's pretty much what it boils down to. You know, your your data is hosed and you need to recover from a known good backup. And what we're discovering is that very few organizations are truly prepared to do that in a reasonable scale time. Yeah, or uh, that a lot of them could deal with that happening on one machine. But if it happens to too many machines, they kind of almost end up in that situation like Facebook did when their routers went out, where it turns out in order to open that door, we need the one of the routers to still be working and none of them are working. And so we can't open that door or like, you know, our automated deployment system that would let us deploy fresh machines to restore the backups to is also ransomware. And so every nothing works. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, one of the more InfoSec related aspects to this is we're also discovering how many organizations haven't properly segmented their systems. Alan and I are always talking about how, you know, your backup system should not trust Prod. Prod should not be able to forcibly do anything to the backup system. And ransomware is, you know, it's, it's literally the demonstration of why your backup system shouldn't trust Prod, why Prod should have no direct access to backup. Because, you know, if that's the way you set your stuff up and backup just sits there and dumbly accepts things from Prod, then you discover that, you know, Prod gets ransomware and so does backup. And now you've gone from what was a really bad day at the office to a really bad week or three at the office. Yeah, that was definitely part of it. Like looking at the Kronos one, they're like, yeah, it'll be weeks before we can actually process anybody's payroll. It's like, what is your backup strategy then? Like, I, you just... Setting everything up from scratch shouldn't even take that long. And, you know, some of that is just typical Star Trek engineer always say it's going to take longer so that, you know, if it does, you're okay. And if it doesn't, you're ahead of schedule. So everything's fine, right? But it also just seems to show that everywhere in IT, there's just mountains and mountains of technical debt. There's just some old software or something that wasn't patched because it broke something and just 
piles of of stuff. And, you know, we've seen this with other things, not necessarily related to ransomware too. It's like, yeah, we had this VPN we weren't using anymore, but we weren't sure nobody was using it anymore. And so we didn't turn it off. And then somebody broke in on it and it never got patched because nobody used it. We all, we had this new shiny VPN that was secure. Uh, But it turns out the old one never got turned off and somebody got in on it and, and did stuff. I've seen a few of those myself where somebody's migrated from one VPN infrastructure to another, but they never turned off the old one. And, you know, then something comes in over the old one. Uh, that kind of technical debt. And we've seen this, like this ransomware, we're not just talking about, you know, screwing over some small business. We've seen it hit hospitals in Ireland and key infrastructure, like oil pipelines and so on in the US and now payroll providers and so on. This is serious stuff. But like when you're at the 10th person to get hit with it and, you know, you've had two years of warning that this is happening to people. It's like, how have you not got a plan for this at this point? Tenth is pretty laughably low. Yes, well, yeah. uh, but I mean, like the tenth one to like make the evening news. Tenth to make the evening lose news is pretty laughably low. Yeah, uh, you know, ransomware has been a pretty obvious threat for quite a while now, and if you don't have a plan, you're way behind, and you really need to start working on that plan and get it in place and and practice it. Yes, you need to have. You know, we've kind of taken this uh, term and used it incorrectly, but you need to have a fire drill for this. And I don't mean your hair's on fire because you didn't have a plan for this. I mean, literally being able to calmly exit the building, even though it's not on fire, and know that if it ever is on fire, everybody can get out of the building in a reasonable amount of time and nobody has to push anybody or run over people. And Which, again, you know, I want to emphasize is not even really an InfoSec-specific thing. Like, if you have any significant storage you should already be doing this. I see people over and over and over again sweating absolute bullets because they're raid array through a disk. And they're like, oh God, I'm so nervous trying to replace this. And it's like, well, you shouldn't be because you should have already done this lots and lots of times to the point where when it happens in prod, you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, I know how this works. And you, you know, slap it in and do the thing. And there's no unknowns. If the first time you experience replacing a disk on your production array is when production is actually degraded, you're not sysadmining right. Well, and even to add on that, it's like if that pool faulting because you didn't get the raid resilvered quickly enough means you lose all that data, it means you were doing it wrong before any disks failed, right? Where's your backups? You, like you should be able to handle, even if there's concurrent failures on that machine, maybe prods down for a little bit, but your data is still over here and you're going to bring a copy back and get your machine back up and running. Yeah, so the deal should be, you know, when you have a a catastrophic failure, whether it's ransomware or whether it's drive failure or... Data center burns down. That literally happened last year too, didn't it? You know that these kinds of failures, statistically, they're going to happen. If it's not going to happen to you this week, if it's not going to happen to you this year, like, are you going to have a whole career in IT? Because if you are, it's going to happen. And when it does happen... By the time it happens, you should already know. You should be like, okay, this is the thing that happened. This is how I recover from it. This is about how much time that's expected to take. If that goes south, this is what the plan B looks like. That's how long that's going to take. And then, you know, when your sea level comes like just screaming down your throat, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, once everything can go back up, you just, I mean, you know, ice in your veins. You look him right back in the eyes and you tell him calmly, well, this is what happened. This is the recovery procedure. This is what we lost. This is when it'll be back up. If that doesn't work, this is how much we lost. And this is when it'll be back up. And you just stare him dead in the eyes, dead calm. You know what you're talking about. And, you know, the thing is, what happens when you do that is they say, oh, 
okay. And they feel better and they let you go on about your work. Whereas if you're sitting there with sweat running down your head and you're stammering, you can't even actually get the work done because they won't stop yelling at you. So, but again, you know, all of this stuff we're talking about, it is absolutely applicable to ransomware. Everything here is directly applicable to ransomware. It's also directly applicable to just competently administering systems professionally. This part of it isn't InfoSec. This is literally operations. If you're going to run servers, you need to have plans for when they die and they need to be replaced or when they get infected or compromised and need to be completely cleared, how to bring them up from bare metal again. Yeah. And now 20 years ago, in a lot of cases, I mean, this has always been the best practice, but 20 years ago, it was for a lot of people at a lot of scales, it was kind of pie in the sky. Because in order to be able to really do this, you, you kind of had to have like two or three of like absolutely everything. And at a lot of scales, you just absolutely couldn't find the budget for that. But these days, there's so much that you can do invert. There's so much infrastructure that you can spin up on a dev scale from literally just a single commodity machine that there just isn't any excuse any longer not to have just thoroughly practiced all these drills. How do I recover from this? How do I deal with that? How long will it take to the point that when it happens, it's just another day in the office? Exactly. And like for practicing the recovery, you can do that with a bunch of VMs on one dev machine over the side, or you can use the cloud if you have to, to rent a bunch of machines to restore things to make sure it all works and then throw it away. Uh, and you only had to pay for it for a couple of days while you were practicing your restoration policy. But having the confidence to know that you're going to be able to re restore from this is going to save you a lot of panic during the actual event. And it's save you the embarrassment of being bad at your job when it turns out you weren't ready. Well, I will say, you know, if your infrastructure is mo mostly on local iron, your dev should almost certainly also be on local iron. It doesn't have to be equivalent. It doesn't have to be as big and bad and awesome as prod. You can usually do enough, you know, for dev and for practice on just whatever little commodity thing that you've got lying around. And similarly, you know, if your prod is in the cloud, you know, at Amazon or, you know, at Linode or wherever, you should probably be doing, you know, your dev stuff and, you know, your practice stuff in the same place. Because again, you want to build this stuff into like, it's basically muscle memory. We're like, you know exactly how this works. And it's not kind of like what you did when you're practicing. It's just like that, you know, how it works, you know, how long it takes, you know, what the procedure is, whether it is physical or whether it's just typing in stuff, you know, all those things, you're familiar with it, you're comfortable with it, you're ready to rock. The first time that I encountered ransomware, like, you know, for real at a client in person, I was excited. Like I wasn't nervous or scared or, oh my God, I was like, I literally said to my client, yay, I get to actually fix this for real. And, you know, my client had been just absolutely terrified when they realized what was going on. When they heard me like literally just being excited that I, you know, got to fix that. Now, you know, the person that I had talked to is telling all of their employees, no, it's going to be fine. Look at him. Does he look scared? It's going to be fine. And, you know, 10 minutes later, it was fine. And that's the kind of experience you want to have when you have these failures. Not everything is going to be a 10 minute recovery, but you find a lot of the time, you know, even when it's an uncomfortable recovery period, when you know how long it's going to take and they can see, you know, when you're talking to them, when they look at your eyes, when they hear your voice, you know what you're talking about, you know what you're doing, you've got the procedure. It makes everything so much better. And it, it doesn't just make things better for you. It genuinely does make things better for you your client or, you know, your C-suite or whatever you want to call it as well, because it allows them to plan. Now, you know, they can plan for, 
what to do with employees while the systems are down. If they're going to be down long enough to impact, you know, people's workflow, they can plan around that. They can schedule people to do other things. They know how to talk to their own customers. Everything is so much better when it's under control and when you've got a timeline. For sure. Like if you have customers calling, being able to say, yeah, we'll have, we got hit. We'll have everything back up by Thursday. That's a lot better and be like, yeah, it'll be a week or two. We don't know. Yeah. And we don't know how much we might have lost. And it's like, no, you, you can't say that to the customers. They'll revolt and leave and they'll be, you know, they'll be switched to somewhere else by the time you get back online. And I think the other part of having the plan is it means if you're big enough to have a team, you can be like, all right, you work on that part of it. You work on that part of it. Instead of being like, all right, everybody um, do some stuff and then come back here and we'll try to figure out what to do next. It's like, hey, we have a plan. We know what the steps are. We know what things have to be ready when. Let's go all make it happen. And I will say again, uh, my two favorite acronyms, because I, I don't think people talk about these anywhere near enough. RTO, that's Romeo Tango Oscar, and RPO, that's Romeo Papa Oscar. Recovery time objective, recovery point objective. When you have a catastrophic failure that involves losing some data, your recovery point objective is how much data you've lost. Have you lost the last hour worth of data? Have you lost the last four hours worth of data? Whatever, which basically boils down to when's the last time the backup was made or the snapshot was taken. Your recovery time objective is how long does it take before all the systems are back up and functional again? So if you understand those terms, you should know, you know, what your actual points are for those. You should know the answer for that. What class of failure involves losing how many hours worth of data and how many hours worth of downtime. And you should be able to communicate that effectively to the people who need to know. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Well, we couldn't end the year out without a ZFS story. And in this case, a feature that you helped to implement in ZFS saved a company called Heap millions of dollars. Yeah, so... Back in early 2020, I finished the work I had started back in, I think, 2016 to integrate Z standard compression into ZFS. And that went upstream and became part of OpenZFS 2.0. And turns out that heap.io, which is an analytics company, and they store petabytes worth of data in the cloud. And when they started moving that over to ZFS and taking advantage of Z standard compression and getting compression ratios of like five to one on some of their data, it ends up save them in total like 20% on their storage bills. And that uh, for them works out to millions of dollars a month in savings. Plus their performance benefits from read as fast as Amazon will let you read at the compressed rate and then decompress it on the CPU and suddenly it's you know four times as much data. So 
if you read 25 gigabytes per second off the disk and then decompress it at four to one, you've now read 100 gigabytes per second, even though that's not physically possible with most networks at the moment. Did they have to do a lot of uh, careful tuning to get that? I mean, I, I know Z standard has a lot of different compression levels with wildly different performance and compression ratios. I've always kind of wondered, like, it, it doesn't seem like something that you can necessarily just slap blindly on to replace LZ4 and necessarily expect a big difference. Like, you really need to know what you're targeting. No, there's not really too much to it. Like, uh, the default, if you just set Compress equals Z standard, is level three. And that, in general, if you were getting, like, two to one compression with LZ4, you'll get it 2.5 to 3 to 1 with Z standard at just a little bit slower uh, compression speed. Now, if you walk up the levels, I think when I tried it with like the, the FreeBSD source code, I went from, I think it was 2.2 to 1 with LZ4. And then with the various levels of Z standard, it ranged from 3 to 5 to 1. So getting as much as 5 to 1, but uh, using the very highest levels of Z standard uses a lot of CPU. Right. And like you get the throughput down into single digits megabytes per second per core. Whereas on the moderate levels, you're talking like, you know, a gigabyte per second per core. So you don't have to do anything special. Now, in the future, Z standard has a bunch of features that would let you do something more special. Like one of the things Z standard has is this uh, concept of a custom dictionary. So uh, ZSAN was originally written uh, specifically for Facebook, and they want eventually for browsers to support Z standard. And all the JSON messages that Facebook sends to your browser all the time when you're moving around on Facebook, if you could have a dictionary for what all the keys in a JSON message are, you could compress those out in a way where, you know, in a header, you would tell the user once, you know, here's the URL for the keys for this, the dictionary for this message, and they now know it, and you can compress all of that down to like a single byte or something. So it's basically the, the same effect as using bytecode messaging instead of plain text, but using your compression library to, to handle that then. Yeah. So you just generate regular JSON, but you deduplicate out all the, the structural parts of the message with this custom compression dictionary. And it means you can make huge amounts of savings to, say, mobile devices, where especially in the developing world, that data connection is expensive. And so if you can reduce the amount of data, that can help. And also doing that in a way that's cheap to decompress on the CPU probably also saves battery, which eventually becomes an important thing on, on phones as well. But out of the box, you can just use Z standard and it will be slightly slower, but give you more compression. I also support the Z standard dash fast versions, which are basically the negative levels uh, of the command line tool. And those eventually get even faster than LZ4, but for less and less compression. So you can say, you know, only do like the free compression. Nothing that will slow me down to, to less than like 10 gigabytes per second or something like that. So what I'm hearing is I'm going to have to get off my butt and do a lot of benchmarking again and figure out what's the right thing for me. Yeah. For Heap, it was more a question of how big can we make the record size and have our application still be okay with it. Because the bigger you make the record size in ZFS, you're going to get more compression. Because, you know, if you give it a megabyte of data at a time, it's going to find a lot more to compress than if you break it up into a bunch of 16K blocks. But if it's a database, then it means every time you modify a record, you have to read the entire record, change part of it, and then write it back. And so the amplification gets worse. Now, if it's compressing enough, 
then you're still reading and writing the same amount to disk as if you hadn't compressed, right? Like if you have a block that uncompressed would have been 16K, but it compresses four to one and you have a record size of 64K, it turns out 64K compresses down to 16 and it was going to be the same either way, but now you're saving all the space and so on. But if you make it too big and you're modifying the records frequently, then it will end up making performance worse. But if you have a, a read-only database, like a, another company using this that I know of is a payment processor. And so their database is just a log of transactions. So they never modify old records. So they can use the full like one megabyte record size and get huge compression. And then with ZFS's compressed arc feature, they're now caching the compressed version instead of the uncompressed version in memory. So if they get three to one compression, 32 gigs of RAM lets them cache 96 gigs of their database. And so running their queries at the end of the day to see net, how much do we have to pay each person or whatever, goes a lot faster. Let's do some feedback then. Firstly, Marcus, James, Guy, and other people told us that we are wrong about magnetic USB cables. This all started when you, Jim, said that you would love to have MagSafe on your phone. And then we said it was a terrible, terrible idea. But apparently some people who listen to us feel quite strongly about this, and we might be wrong. It all boils down to whether the device that is actually plugged in semi-permanently to your phone's USB-C port, whether it truly is protruding enough to catch on things and, you know, cause mechanical problems. Some of the ones that people have linked us to in the feedback do look considerably lower profile than any of the ones that I had seen when I was just kind of casually shopping, looking on Amazon to see what there was. And none of them are quite entirely flush. And, you know, even the ones that are quite low profile I wish they were at least, I don't know, a, a bit more rounded around the housing or something to make me feel a little bit more certain that they weren't going to catch on something in my pocket. But it does seem like we have enough folks reporting in that they've had good experiences that it's maybe worth a shot. I would still be a, a bit nervous about entrusting a brand new $1,200 phone to that personally, though. Well, in particular, I was starting to wonder, like, maybe if you have... An iPhone, it fits well or something like, uh, and I, we were looking at USB-C one, so that wouldn't be an iPhone, but like, you know, every phone's a bit different. If there was one like designed for my phone that would, you know, contour to it better, maybe that would be less of an issue. But then it's like, well, I have a not very normal case on my phone uh, because I like the belt holster. And so in that case, it's like, how do I get one that's like, Nothing that hangs out the bottom of my phone is going to be compatible with this thing on my phone. Well, I think that it has to be compatible more with the case than the phone, really, because my case sticks out a little bit. And so if I could get something that would sit within the case, which apparently you can get, maybe I'd be all right. Well, you know, that also brings the uh, the option to mind that maybe case manufacturers could start, you know, building this in as an option literally to the case, so, you know, the the case actually plugs directly into the USB-C and provides a MagSafe option. If any of you case vendors out there are listening, hint, hint, that'd be pretty neat. I'd be on board with it. Yeah. Of course, now I'm thinking of even just a case that did wireless charging, but you plugged the case in? You know, I, I've seen some of those, but honestly, I've also had some pretty dubious results with, uh, you know, the Qi wireless charging. Um, I've had several Nexus and Pixel phones that would, at least in theory, do the Qi charging, then Google dropped it and I was no longer able to use it, which saddened me. But like, you know, even when it did work, it had a lot of the same, I found a lot of the same problems with Qi that I do with a phone that ends up with a loose, you know, sloppy USB socket to begin with. 
Sometimes you don't hold your mouth just right, and yeah, you've got the phone where it should be on the charger, but something didn't hook up quite right, and your phone says it's charging, but maybe it still manages to actually lose 2% overnight because you just didn't have it quite right, or maybe in the middle of the night, you know, just some random thing, and you wake up to ding-dong, 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 because your phone decides it's charging, then it's not, and it's charging, then it's not. It can be kind of a pain in the ass. The best look that I had was not with the Google supplied charger that, you know, is a little bitty thing that the phone's kind of supposed to magnetically suck itself down onto. I had better luck with a large third party charger that had uh, basically bays for two phones side by side on it. But even then, I ended up like basically doing a, uh, you know, kind of a homicide investigation deal. I had like a little chalk outline, outline, like put your phone right here for best results. Also, lots of people weighed in with opinions on the crypto debate and how language changes and everything. I would say probably slightly more people came down on my side than with you guys, but thank you everyone who wrote to us about that. Michael wrote in about Spinrite. He says, their website is pathetic, but the software is great. I've been using it since 2000 and it's brought several systems back to life. It has been under heavy development for the last year, and 6.1 will ship in Q1 2022. I've used it once or twice. In general, as soon as a hard drive is suspect, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. So I don't have much interest in software like this. Mm. And again, it comes back to backups, doesn't it? Exactly. I, I hope I never need to use something to try to recover data off a drive. And, you know, Spinrite might be great, but just for the love of God, do not go to grc.com and take any information security advice from that site. Also the home of Shields Up. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then, but just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or questions, Show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Lilith says, Our office work style has gone full remote now, and we are set on closing the office. However, we have a QNAP TS873 NAS that is staying in the office currently, which works as our remote backup storage. I'm wondering, what would you guys do with it? I was thinking of bringing it home, and things would still be managed the same way. However, the other part of me was also wondering if I could install something like Ubuntu 20.04 LTS or similar on it and set up a ZFS snapshot and restore system as we are keen on converting our existing rsync-based backup system to a ZFS-based system. What would you guys decide to do? Now, I'm going to put my psychic hat on here and say something tells me that you're both going to say, yeah, stick with rsync, it's great. 
No, hang on. No, no, I was wrong. No, you're going to say R-Sync sucks. ZFS for the win. Turns out that was your dunce cap, not your psychic cat, Joe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I've got great news for you. Uh, Turns out you don't need to do something weird like install Ubuntu on it because I looked it up and the QNAP TS873 supports their Qt's Hero firmware, which includes ZFS baked right in. Yeah, uh, a lot of those QNAPs are are ZFS or can be anyway. And that particular one specifically is, I did look it up, the TS873 does support Qt's Hero, which has full ZFS support built right into it. Yep. If you're just looking for the same kind of concept of having a central place to put the backup and you you or your boss doesn't want that to be your house, uh, maybe just because your your home internet can't handle the uh, the amount of backing up you're going to do or the restore wouldn't be fast enough from your house because your upload isn't fast enough, you can also put something like that in the cloud with the, any one of the cloud providers and, and do something like that. And again, doing it with ZFS uh, will be better um, because the incremental send with ZFS is, as Jim's article have shown, somewhere between two and a thousand times faster than rsync. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions and feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And you're already following me at Alan Jude. <laughs> we'll see you next week.